I want you to take your Bibles. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 27. And I know that it's hard to, if you've had a rough morning, if you've been distracted, if right now you're so focused on China King and blessing them that you, you're, you're not really focused on what's getting ready to happen here. I'm just, I want to pray because listen, we're going to get right into this thing and uh, I want you to be engaged, mind and your body and spirit. And I want us to be ready for whatever the Holy Spirit has for us today. Father, as we open your word, I ask that you prepare our hearts. God, may, it, may I not try to make this word say anything that it doesn't say this morning, but we have arrived at a place in Scripture that is crucial to our faith. And I want us to just sit at the foot of the cross this morning and be blessed now, I, want it to, I want us to engage, and I want, it to, I want our response this morning to be worship to the one who gave his life for our sins. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Matthew chapter 27, we covered basically 1 through 10 already, uh, covered most of that with the Judas last week. I want to pick it up in verse 11, and here's what the word of God says. Now, Jesus was standing before Pilate. The Roman governor, now remember last week in chapter 26, Jesus had Passover with the disciples. They went into the garden. Jesus pleaded for the Father to, to let the cup of suffering and death pass, but if there was no other way, and then they came and they arrested Jesus, and this is where we pick it up. He's now standing before Pilate, and here's what Pilate asked him. Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus replied, you have said it. But when the leading priests and the elders made their accusations against him, Jesus remained silent. Don't you hear all these charges they are bringing against you, Pilate demanded? But Jesus made no response to any of the charges, much to the governor's surprise. Now, this isn't the first time that we have seen Jesus exercise self-control in being silent, is it? We saw him do it last week in chapter 26 when he was being questioned by the religious leaders. And then we saw Peter as he references this, I think, this very moment in a letter that he would later pen in 1 Peter chapter 2 when he says this about Jesus. Jesus, verse 22, never sinned. He never deceived anyone. He did not retaliate when he was insulted, nor did he threaten revenge when he suffered. In other words, he remained silent. And how does one remain silent when you're in that setting? Well, Peter tells us, Jesus left his case, his life, his reputation, his safety, his comfort in the hands of God, who always judges fairly. The key to Jesus' silence was his trust in his Father. And let me just say this because we're moving on and we're not going to come back to this point, but our ability, our ability to remain silent when we are tempted to say the most, when it's your reputation on the line, when it's people gossiping about you, right? When somebody is getting the promotion that you deserve, when someone has said something that has deeply hurt you, when someone has done something that has deep, when you are most tempted to lash out and speak out, your ability to remain silent when you are most tempted to say the most will be determined by where your trust actually 
rest. If we are our own God, then we will feel very compelled. We will feel very compelled to win our own case. We must say something because no one else is going to say something on our behalf. And so we lash out, we speak out. But if we can learn to rest our case in the hands of God, then we won't feel so compelled to plead or to win our case before others. Our silence is a discipline learned by trusting in the sovereignty of God who always judges fairly. When you lash out and you say, why do I do that? It's because in that moment you're not believing that God will judge fairly. And so you're going you're gonna to be God. And you are going to judge fairly in your own eyes. Isaiah says this, be still. And know God. Be still and know God. Verse 15. Now it was the governor's custom each year during the Passover celebration to release one prisoner to the crowd, anyone they wanted. And this year there was a notorious prisoner, a man named Barabbas. And as the crowds gathered before Pilate's house that morning, he asked them, Which one do you want me to release to you? the notorious sinner, the notorious criminal Barabbas, or Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Because he knew very well that the religious leaders had arrested Jesus out of envy. Just then, as Pilate was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him this message, leave that innocent man alone. I suffered through a terrible nightmare about him last night. Meanwhile, the leading priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas to be released and for Jesus to be put to death. So the governor asked again, which of these two do you want me to release to you? And the crowd shouted back, we want Barabbas. And Pilate responded, then what should I do with Jesus who is called the Messiah? And they shouted back, crucify him. Peter asked, or Pilate asked why? What crime has he committed? But the mob didn't care about a crime committed. They roared even louder, crucify him. And Pilate saw that he wasn't getting anywhere and that a riot was developing, so he sent for a bowl of water and he washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. The responsibility is yours. And all the people yelled back, we will take the responsibility for his death. We and our children. So Pilate released Barabbas to them, and he ordered Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip, and then he turned him over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified. This text is a bit more foreshadowing of what exactly is happening, because yes, there is a choice to be made there's Barabbas, the notorious criminal, or Jesus, the innocent Messiah. And as easy of a decision as it should have been, here's what we know. Justice was not served in this story. And the guilty was set free while the innocent suffered 
and died. But isn't that the picture of redemption? We are Barabbas. You always want to put yourself in the story as the hero? No. You're the notorious sinner. You're the notorious criminal. We are all sinners. We are Barabbas. We are guilty. We are the ones deserving of death. But the gospel, this is why the gospel is good news. The guilty goes free while the innocent one suffered and died. That's the gospel. Peter, back in his letter, right after he told us that Jesus left his case, the very next verse says this, Jesus personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds, you're healed. The guilty go free, and Jesus dies. Verse 27, some of the governor's soldiers took Jesus into their headquarters, and they called out the entire regiment, and they stripped Jesus, and they put a scarlet robe on him. And they wove thorn branches into a crown and they put it on his head and they placed a reed stick in his right hand as a scepter. Then they knelt before him in mockery. And they knelt before him taunting him. Hail, king of the Jews. And they spit on him. And then they grabbed the stick and they would strike him in the head with it. And when they were finally tired, of mocking him. They took off the robe, they put his own clothes on him again, and they led him away to be crucified. And along the way, they came across a man named Simon who was from Cyrene, and the soldiers forced him to carry Jesus' cross. And they went out to a place called Gagatha, which means place of the skull. The soldiers gave Jesus wine mixed with bitter gall, and when he had tasted it, he refused to drink it. And after they had nailed him to the cross, the soldiers gambled for his clothing by throwing dice. It was all a game, just a big party. In verse 36, this was kind of heavy, then they just sat around and kept, caught, kept guard as he hung there. Just sit and watch him suffocate. A sign was fastened above Jesus' head announcing the charge against him. It read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Two revolutionaries were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. The people passing by shouted abuse, shaking their heads in mockery. Look at you now. They yelled at him. You said you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well, then, if you are the Son of God, save yourself and come down from the cross. The leading priests and the teachers and the religious law, uh, of the religious law and the elders, they also mocked Jesus. He saved others, they scoffed, but he can't save himself. And I always make this point when we get to the scripture. The reason why Jesus didn't come off the cross is because he did not come to save himself. He didn't need saving. We needed saving. 
That's why he didn't come off the cross. You've heard me say it a million times. Thank God I'm not Jesus. Because the first, first, I wouldn't have even got to the cross before I just smite them all. They'd all been dead. But even, even if I would have made it to the cross, the first time they said, save yourself, I would have been off the cross right in their face. And then I'd smote them all, <laughs> smite them all. And that, my friend, is why I'm not Jesus. Hanging between heaven and earth, struggling to breathe in his last moments. Amber, I got to be with Julie yesterday. Harley's in his last moments on this earth, Julie's husband. And as hard as that is, it's sweet to see family surrounding him. There's peace in that. There's no peace here at the cross. Because in Jesus' last moments on this earth, they're still mocking him. And ridiculing him. And it says in verse 43, he, he, this is still them mocking him. He, he trusted God, so let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. And then verse, even the, revel, even the criminals on the right and the left, they join in and they're ridiculing him. Think about, you're in your last moments of life yourself. You're, you're suffering. And in your last moments, you choose to mock the man on the middle cross. Verse 45, at noon, darkness fell across the whole land until 3 o'clock. And about 3 o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani which means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Some of the bystanders misunderstood and thought he was calling for the prophet Elijah, and one of them ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, holding it up to him on a reed stick so he could drink. But the rest said, wait, let's see whether Elijah comes to save him. And then Jesus shouted out again, and he released his spirit. He died. And, it, and at that moment, the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. <laughs> and the earth shook, and the rocks split, and the tombs opened. And maybe you didn't even know this part of the story. The bodies of many godly men and women who had died were raised from the dead. And they left the cemetery after Jesus' resurrection. Spoiler alert, that's next Sunday. But I just have this image. I never, listen, they rose from the grave and apparently they're just walking around the graveyard for three days. And then they're released from the graveyard and they go home. And it says this, that they went into the holy city and they appeared before many people. Wow. 54, last verse. The Roman officer and the other soldiers at the crucifixion, they were terrified at the earthquake and all that had happened. And they stood there at the foot of the cross, looking up at the lifeless body of Jesus and declared, this truly was the Son of God. 
And may God bless the reading of his word. We first opened the book of Matthew together in December of 2021. That's when we started this study. That means it has taken us 18 months to get to this moment. Every step that Jesus has traveled, every restless spirit, every sleepless night he has endured was bringing him to this moment. Every miracle Jesus performed, every message that he preached was pointing to this moment. Jesus was born for this moment. Destined to die. And I love the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12, verse 2, that says this about Jesus. Because of the joy awaiting Jesus, he endured the cross, disregarding it's shame. And here's the question. What is the joy that was awaiting Jesus? What was the joy that Jesus could look to that helped him get through the most painful crucifixion, the most painful execution that you could imagine? Well, the rest of verse 2 says this. And now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's what was the joy? The joy was that he was going to be back in his rightful place at the right hand of the Father, surrounded by angels, surrounded by saints. That definitely was part of the joy that was set before him. But I also believe the joy of reconciling us to himself was the joy that helped him endure the cross. Why do I think that? Because last week, remember Jesus was in the garden surrounded by soldiers and the disciples thought they were going to fight their way out with a sword. And Jesus said, hey, in verse 52 last week, he says, those who use the sword will die by the sword. Remember that? And then he said, don't you realize that I could ask my father for thousands of angels to protect us? And he would send them instantly. And we kind of made a joke about that. Like, okay, well, if you're a disciple, you're probably thinking... This is the moment. Like, this is where we call those angels. This is where we do work, right? But Jesus isn't finished because, in, I mean, this is such a crucial moment. He says, but if I did that, how would the scriptures be fulfilled that describes what must happen now? And what happens now? Well, now we know Jesus is betrayed by a friend. He is arrested he is falsely accused, he is illegally tried, he is mocked, he is beaten, and he is crucified. And we know by Jesus' own testimony, he could have stopped it all. He could have stopped it at any moment with just one word, but he didn't. He didn't because our redemption... Our freedom from sin depended on him staying the course. Our hope of life beyond death hung in the balance of the cross. And so this is such an encouraging moment. We are the answer to why Jesus did what he did. Why would Jesus leave heaven to walk among sinners? By the way, sinners who rejected him. 
Why would Jesus allow men to betray him and deny him and mock him and beat him and kill him? Why would Jesus die? Because God commended his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We are Jesus' why. And the cross is the proof. For God so loved the world that he gave us his only begotten son. For God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sins so that we could be made right with God through Christ. For the joy set before Jesus, he endured the cross. And now, for the cross set before us, we get to enjoy Christ. Every, let me give you our big idea for today. The cross, it changes everything. The cross changes everything for us. The joy before Jesus might have been his why, but today the cross unequivocally is our why. Church, the cross is our why. The cross will always be our why. Everything we do as Christians must be motivated and inspired by the cross. We used to do home groups, and hopefully we'll get back to that. We stopped them during COVID, and we never started them again. There was a group that met in our home every week, and we'd have dinner together. And then we'd go to the living room, and I'd pull out my nerdy whiteboard, and we'd sit in my living room, and we'd we dissect the scriptures together. And there was always, if you've been around here for a while, you, you know the chart that we use. There's questions that we ask about the text. What is the text saying about who God is? What is the text saying about what God has done, specifically through the work and person of Jesus, if we're in the New Testament? And, um, and, and then who are we? That was the third question. Who are we in light of who God is and what God has done? Who are we? And then what are we to do, right? What are we to do? And we'd spend time talking about how what obedience looks like according to what we read. And then there's that, that main fifth question they would ask. Well, then, how, how do you do it? Like, it's not about just a Bible study where we sit and, all right, well, now we know what obedience looks like to that passage. Everybody have a great week. We take it a step farther and go, okay, now how are you going to be obedient to that passage this week? And we do that every week. And they seem to enjoy it. I certainly enjoyed it. And... Um, it didn't take long. It might have been a few weeks. It might have been a few months. I can't remember. But at some point, one of the men in our group said, you know what? It seems like we always keep coming back to the cross. And everybody kind of chuckled for a moment. <laughs> and then we're like, I, wait a minute. I think that's the point. That's the, that's the beauty of, of asking these questions because at some point, it's always going to bring us back to the cross. Everything Everything for the church, everything for the Christian comes back to the cross because we are a Jesus-centered church, which means we have to be a cross-centered church. The cross must be at the center of everything we do. 
That's why as a church we are committed to doing for others as Jesus has done for us. That keeps us, that, just that question, that, that idea, that concept keeps us centered on the cross. It forces us to stay focused on the cross. We love because Christ first loved us. How do we know that he loved us? The cross. And so when it's 4th of July weekend, and you've already been told by about 40 people they're not going to be at church on Sunday, and now I'm really worried because everybody showed up at the 9 a.m. And as a pastor, I start to worry. What if no one comes? And then you're reminded, it doesn't matter. We don't, we don't let the size of the crowd dictate our worship. So we're thankful you're here, but even if there was just one or two of you here, I'd still preach the same message, and we're going to still sing the same songs because it's not about us, it's about the cross. He's still king. He's still, pers- he's still pursuing us. He's still loving us even though we don't deserve it. Listen, we serve because Christ first served us. How did Christ serve us? By taking on the form of flesh and being obedient to his Father even unto death on the cross. And so Tuesday when we show up here to serve and there's eight of us, we're like, wait a minute, we're a church of 130 people. Why is there only eight of us? And if we're not careful, it will start to mess with our servant's heart. And instead of saying, where is everybody else? We should, I should be thankful for the eight and say, we're here today. Just whether only one or two, if it's just my family, because they have no choice. If no one else shows up, I should serve with joy because Jesus served me with joy. And here we go, here we go. And when we're serving and we're doing it bitterly, and you know it, you're still doing the work, but you're griping as you're doing it, somebody needs to tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, you've lost focus of the cross. You've lost, if no one else shows up, you show up because Jesus showed up. And you worship through your serving. (laughs) We forgive because Christ forgave us. How did Jesus forgive us? By dying on the cross for our sins. This morning, my routine on Sundays, I try to get up super early so I could read through the scriptures and pray and read through the sermon psalm. and, And I did that. It was a good morning. Chapter 27, it's the cross. And there's this peaceful moment of just worshiping Jesus about six this morning. And, and then I open my email. Jonas in here? And I find out there's two Microsoft charges for about $50. And, and the reason why that created some anger in me is because a week ago we looked on our email and there was some Microsoft charges. And so we grounded our youngest son because he decided to buy some V-Bucks 
some video game money with my real money without asking. And so there was a conversation last week, and let's just say it probably didn't go the way Jesus would have had the conversation with him. He would have been a little less forgiving, or a little more forgiving than me. And I, and I just come through this moment of reading about the cross, and then I see those charges again. And he doesn't know this yet. This is a conversation. Well, he will, because his Xbox is now gone. Been removed from the playroom. And I remember this morning when I saw that, in, in an instant I went from worship to anger. And then the Spirit reminded me, yep, that's how it feels. <laughs> you sinned and I forgave you and you go and you sin again. And again. And again. I've told you in the word to follow me, to walk in my ways, to be wise, and you walk the other direction. And it was just a moment to remind me that even though there's consequences for his actions, there needs to be grace. Because God has been gracious with me over and over. You see, when, the, when I say the cross changes everything, it will even change the way that we discipline our children. It will change the way that we react to our spouse, to our neighbor, to our boss. We bless others as Christ has blessed us. How, how have you been blessed? By Jesus. We do what we do because of what Jesus has done for us at the cross. Yes, everything comes back to the cross because it is our why. It's why we do what we do. That's why I'm convinced Jesus broke bread and he passed the cup around the table. Listen, he could have commanded us to remember him and to remember his finished work a million different ways, but he commands us to remember him around the table, breaking bread and the taking of the cup. Why do you think he did that? I don't have all of the answers, but one of the reasons why I think he did that is because he knew that it was something that we would do multiple times a day in every culture, in every nation, people. Daily, multiple times, gather around the table to break bread and to take of the cup. And Jesus says, as often as you do this, as often as you break bread, as often as you lift the cup, I want you to remember me. And I want you to partake with gratitude in the sacrifice that I made for you upon the cross by which now we can experience covenant relationship with God once again. We're going to take communion, and the danger is, since we take communion quite often around here, that it's just another, it's just another week. But I want us to understand this. We get to do this because Jesus died on the cross. 
It's the only reason we do this. Because it's our weekly reminder that the cross, the finished work of Jesus on our behalf, it's our why. It's why we're going to go back out and we're going to love as he loved and serve as he served and bless as he's blessed and forgive as he's forgiven and, and accept as he's accepted because of what he's done. So I'm going to ask that you go and, and you get your cups and then I want you to group up some. I don't care how you group up. Two, 15, doesn't matter, but get communion. I just want you to group up and we're going to wrap up with a some prayer, and, and then we're going to sing a few songs. But you, you're, you're, you can go. Go ahead and go. There's two stations up here, and there's a station in back. So find your, your bread and your juice, and we'll take communion. You can group up and don't be anxious. I'm not going to ask you to do anything weird. You don't have to talk if you don't want to talk. But Jesus did tell us as often as we do this, we are to do it in remembrance of him. And, and the question is, what are we remembering? And what we're remembering with the, the bread that we're about to take is that it was his body broken for us. That Jesus took all of the, the, everything that we've read over the last two weeks, Jesus endured it all so that we could be here today and lift this cup with confidence that we don't have to hold on to our guilt and we don't have to hang on to our shame because Jesus took our guilt and our shame upon his body. And so we take of the bread this morning, church. His body broken for us. And by his wounds, we're healed. And we take of the juice and remember it's of the new covenant that we have. Because of his blood shed for us, the Bible says we have forgiveness of our sins. This is the joy of communion. If you come in here today and your week has been filled with sin and you're feeling shame and your guilt, this is your reminder you're forgiven. <laughs> we, remember last week we said Jesus knew your past sins and he knows your current sins. And so if you've come in here today and you're just feeling yucky, you have just lifted the cup of bread and juice in remembrance that you have forgiveness through the shed blood of Jesus. He knew you was going to sin. He knew you was going to mess up. He knew that there was no way you could follow him perfectly. And so he came and he lived perfectly on our behalf. His body broken, his blood shed for us. And so here's the question. I want to put it on the screen. How has the cross changed you? We just, Peter said, Jesus personally took our sins upon himself. And now I want you to make it personal this morning about the cross. How has the cross changed you? Or, or, or maybe, how is the cross right now 
changing you.